Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would get your Bibles out and open them up to Acts chapter 2. Acts, the second chapter. We're going to read one verse in Acts chapter 2 to set up what we want to talk about for these next few minutes as we continue to think today about growth. And in particular, we're talking today about some things that stunt growth. And we will begin that momentarily in Acts, the second chapter. As you're turning there, I'll say it is great and it is encouraging to see everybody here this evening. We do have a lot of folks that are out with sickness, and uh, I do think there are a couple of folks that were traveling that just didn't get their names and uh, info related to the announcements. But for those of you that are here, thank you so much for being here. This has been a good day uh, of worship here at Lakeside for just a number of various reasons, and not the least of which is the fact that we get the opportunity to come together now for a second time today to stir one another up to love and to good works as we worship God in spirit and in truth. I hope you're edified by our time together here on this first day of the week. Let's read together in Acts the second chapter. This is the one of the concluding statements. This is the result of all of the preaching that took place by Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in the city of Jerusalem. We're told that the result of all of that in verse 41 is this, Acts 2.41. So those who received His word were baptized and there were added that day about three thousand souls. Three thousand souls. How big should the church be? How big should this church be? You ever stopped and thought about that? How big should the lakeside congregation be? Scripturally, I am not aware of any limitation that is placed on the size of a congregation of God's people. There's not any verse that I'm aware of that says, once you reach this many folks, you got to start sending people away to go somewhere else because, well, that's just the limit. That's just the most you can have. And I'm not aware of any passage that says that. And listen, God is very, very capable of placing limits whenever He sees fit. Do you remember the story of Gideon and his army? God put a cap on that army. 300 folks was all He was going to allow. So I want you to understand that the Lord is well able to place limits on His people. But I know of no place in the New Testament where God sets a limit on how big the local church can be. Now, numerical growth, numerical size is not the most important factor in the life of a church. But since every number represents a soul... Well, there is a sense in which numbers do matter. Because what that means is, is that means that the more people who are being saved, the more people who are serving the Lord, the more people who are being the salt of the earth and the light of this world in a world that is full of darkness, then the better, right? That means that we ought to want the church to grow. We want the church to grow spiritually, and we want the church to grow numerically. Now, I realize that when I ask that question, don't we want the church to grow? I realize it's very easy for us to kind of nod our head in agreement and say, yep, yep, that's exactly right. After all, who's going to be the one that's going to stand up and say, no, I'm not for church growth. I'm against it. I'm opposed to the church growing. No, everybody knows what the right answer is when the question comes about whether or not the church ought to grow. But sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder if everybody really does want the church to grow. Sometimes people will pay lip service to that idea, but in truth, deep inside, they harbor thoughts, and they harbor ideas, and they harbor attitudes, and they even harbor some prejudices that actually prevent and stand in the way of church growth. 
to use the vocabulary of this morning's sermon, there are some attitudes that actually serve to stunt church growth. Sometimes we can have wrong thinking. Sometimes we can have wrong attitudes that end up obstructing the growth of God's church. And what we need to do is we need to recognize those obstructions when they exist in our mind, lest we are guilty of saying all the right things. Oh yes, I want the church to grow. I love the Lord's kingdom and I want it to grow and I want it to expand. But in reality, our attitudes and maybe even the actions that follow Maybe they tell a completely different story. We don't want, to be, don't want to be guilty of that kind of duplicity. Now, I want to talk about that this evening. I want to talk about what kinds of things stunt the growth of the Lord's church. But before we can begin to talk about that, I do need to make sure that we're all on the same page. I do need to issue some important disclaimers. Let's go over a little bit of fine print, if you will. First of all, I do want to just reiterate that God is not primarily concerned with numbers. In the book of Acts, we do get some numbers. If you read in the first early chapters of the book of Acts, you'll notice that Luke makes record of different numbers of folks, like here in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. But pretty quickly, as you continue to work through the book of Acts, you find out that that starts to taper off. And what that says to me is that says to me that maybe maybe numbers are not the end-all, be-all, like we tend to think that they are. In fact, there are congregations in the New Testament that really we don't know anything about their size. We don't know whether they were large. We don't know whether they were small. We don't know whether they were just medium and average. But we do know lots about the character of those groups. We know lots about the faithfulness of those groups. And I think that's a pretty good indicator to us that God is way more interested in the faithfulness of His people than He is with the size of His people. That said, all living things grow. Isn't that right? If something is alive, it's to be growing. And if we are a living church, like we hope and as we profess to be, then that means that we ought to be growing. Those numbers do appear for us at various places in the New Testament for a reason. And I think that is to show us that to some degree, God does care about numbers. Why? Because each number represents a soul. So I want to make sure that we do have a balance there. I think God's first and foremost concerned about faithfulness, but God is also concerned about numerical growth. Secondly, though, it does need to be stated that numerical growth, well, that's just not always something that we can control. You've maybe had the experience before of going out of town, maybe for work or going out of town for vacation, And you're in a kind of maybe a remote area on a Sunday and you need to find a place to be able to worship with. And so you look up the local church or at least the closest place that you can go to attend on that particular day. And you realize that this church is not very big. But as you begin to kind of survey the town and survey the area, you come to find out that there's actually a lot of factors that contribute to the smallness of that group. There's just maybe not lots of industry in that area. Not lots of jobs, not lots of opportunities for folks. It's the kind of town where when kids get through school, when they graduate high school, they go off somewhere else to college and they don't ever come back. There's no reason for them to come back. And so there are some mitigating factors that are in there that are really outside of the congregation's control. In fact, the congregation may be very, very faithful. They may be very, very evangelistic. But due to things like geography or the local economy... As a result of those things, the size of the church isn't really all that impressive. And I want us to understand about that. I want us to understand that sometimes growth doesn't happen despite the best efforts of its members. Thirdly, though, I want us to also remember that numerical size 
Well, that's very relative. You know, if you did grow up in one of those small, shrinking sort of towns, and you worshipped and grew up in a small congregation, you were accustomed to worshipping as a kid with a church of 20, 25 people, when you maybe moved to this area, and maybe you started attending with the Lakeside congregation, and now you're worshipping with 120, 125 people, you may be inclined to say, wow, this is a large church. And while Lakeside is above the average size for what a local church of Christ is these days, I looked at the recent numbers and the figures in 2018 reported that the average attendance for local churches of Christ was 94. And so we're a little bit above that. But the truth is, to some people, 120, 125, that's actually kind of small. You especially start talking to some of your denominational friends who are maybe part of you know, kind of big mainstream denominational churches. Maybe they're part of one of these community churches that has all kinds of satellite campuses all over the place. And you start asking, well, how many people go to your church? And they start talking in terms of thousands, maybe even 10,000. Wow, now, now that's talking large. That's large numbers by what we understand. And so when we throw around terms like large church or small church, please understand that those terms are very relative depending on who you're talking to. And fourthly, what we need to keep in mind is we need to keep in mind that the church is made up of people. And that is why I'm preaching this sermon this evening to people. That church in Jerusalem, it was booming numerically. Why? Because the people in that congregation were busy and they were active and they were sharing the gospel with their friends and neighbors. Conversely, that church in Laodicea, they were floundering and they were flaming out spiritually. Why? Because the people, the people in that church were being lukewarm. I say all of that to remind us that the church, when we talk about the church, we're not talking about some impersonal corporate structure thing that operates Monday through Saturday separate and apart from the lives of its members. No, we are the church. And we're not just the church on Sunday. We are the church all week long. And so if the church is growing, it's because individuals in that church are doing the kinds of things that they ought to do, and we are being the kind of people that we ought to be 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Let me just say one more final thing in connection with all these fine print sorts of things. I need you to know tonight that this lesson is not the result of anyone having any kind of problems with church growth. This lesson is not the result of someone saying something to me about how, man, I just, I'm just not a real big fan of the church here growing like it has over the last few years. I've not had any conversations with anyone who was anti-growth and now I'm going to stand up here and use the pulpit as a sniper's nest and I'm just going to start picking those folks off and I'm just going to give them what for. No, that would be a terrible use of the pulpit. You should know though that the time really to talk about these sorts of things to talk about maybe some strongly held attitudes and dearly held ideas and beliefs is not whenever there is trouble or somebody says something off the wall. No, the time to talk about those things is at a time like this, when we are at peace, when we are united. Because when we have the kind of calm atmosphere, the kind of peaceful atmosphere that exists right now, then that enables us to study the Word of God and to think about it clearly. And if changes do need to be made in my attitude and in my approach about how I look at things, then hopefully I'm going to be much more likely to be ready to make those changes. 
And so somebody at this point is probably saying, well, Josh, what exactly are you talking about? What kinds of attitudes might exist that hinder growth and keep the church small? And again, I'm using the term small relatively. Well, I'm glad that you would ask that. I want to share with you three of those attitudes right now. And I want us to think about these things. I want us to think about these things very personally, whether they apply or even if they don't. I want to put some things in place so that these things never do apply to me. Number one, sometimes growth gets stunted whenever tenured members expect new members to be just like them. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. In every congregation, there are old-timers. Maybe a better term would be long-timers. It's a nicer way to say that. Long-timers, where you've got people who've been part of the congregation for a long time. And as a result of being associated with the congregation for a long time, those folks have an understanding about the history of the church. They understand what the church has gone through. They know about some of the highs. They know about the lows. They know how the work has gotten to where it is now. And they have an appreciation for all of that. They have an appreciation for how things are done. This is the way we do things. This is the way it is. And this is the why why it's this way. And this is exactly how it's going to be. And of course, most importantly of all, this is where I sit. This is my seat. Do not sit in my pew. And of course, all of that comes whenever you start to have longer tenure within a congregation. And I'm using that term tenure kind of accommodatively. And I will tell you this evening, we've got lots of tenured folks here at Lakeside. We've got folks here who were here from day one. And you are the ones who can remember when this church existed prior to this building even existing. You remember meeting in that rented space down on North Highway 27. And as a result, there are people here who have lots of history. And they have a lot of appreciation for the history of this congregation. And I want to say, that is so important. Because these are the very people who have made this church what it is today. In many ways, we would not be here now without these folks. Some of these folks are here in this room sitting right now. And some of these folks have already gone to be with the Lord. And we need to be thankful for that. And I am thankful for that. But sometimes what happens is, is we get all of that history, and this is the way that we've always done it, and this is what my daddy did or my granddaddy did, and this is where I've always sat. And now these new people are all coming in here, and guess what? These new people, they don't know any of that stuff. They don't know how we act in here. They don't know that this is the way we do things. They don't know that this is the history of how we got to where we are. And worst of all, they're sitting in my pew. And of course, as those new folks come in, and as they start kind of traipsing over everything, not even necessarily on purpose, it's just the way that it is, it doesn't take long before you start having a gap between those tenured folks and the new folks. And the tenured folks are starting to think, you know what? We didn't have all of these challenges before these new people got here. When these new people got here, it's just kind of created a a disruption in the order of stuff. And now we're having to, to deal with problems that did not exist prior. And as soon as somebody, the preacher, gets up and he starts preaching about church growth, what are the tenured folks thinking? The tenured folks are thinking, "Eh, I'm not really sure that I want us to grow anymore. 
I think maybe that grow thing is kind of overrated a little bit. You know, I kind of liked it when we were about half the size that we are now. You know, it just takes an awful lot of work. It's taking an awful lot of extra effort to bring all these new folks up to speed. Do you want to see that in the Bible? Look at Acts the 15th chapter. In Acts chapter 15, this is the Jerusalem conference where you had Jewish Christians who were saying to the Gentile Christians, that what you need to do is you need to become a Jew before you can actually be counted as a real Christian. Before we can really identify you as an actual member of the Lord's church. Verse 5 sums it all up very well. Acts 15 verse 5. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now why would anybody compel people to first become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You talk about something being a huge barrier to growth, that seems to me like a huge barrier to growth. Hey guys, here's the plan of salvation. You need to hear, you need to believe, and you need to confess, and you need to repent, and you need to be baptized. Oh, and by the way, you need to also have some serious surgery as well. Whoa! That for me would be a huge barrier. Telling people that you have to be circumcised? That you have to follow the law of Moses in order to be a part of the Lord's church? Why would they do that? Why were these Jewish Christians going to that trouble? Well, what's going on here is you had these Jewish Christians who had the mindset that said, we are the people of God. And we've been the ones who've been carrying the weight of all of this for all time. We're the ones that you read about in the Exodus. When you get to the kings, that's us. When you read about the captivity of God's people, that's us too. The whole Old Testament, that's our story. And now Paul and his companions and his buddies, they're coming along and they're saying that these Gentiles, they can just come into the kingdom of God without without having to participate in all that, without having to even pay attention to all of that, without knowing how it's always been, that they can just get in? Come on! Those folks, those Gentiles, they need to first pay their dues like we did. And Jewish Christians often did have very high opinions of themselves. Would you look in Romans chapter 2? In Romans chapter 2, Paul actually addresses some thoughts here to these Jewish Christians and how they did think so highly of themselves. In Romans chapter 2, I'm reading here in verse 17. Paul says in Romans 2 verse 17, he says, But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rely uh, rely on the law and boast in God, and you know His will and you approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, hey, you Jews, you're old-timers. You're a real old-timer. You're a long-timer. And now these Gentiles are coming in, and they're just kind of getting in the way of everything. And they don't really know anything about what's going on. And they're just messing everything up. You know what? Those Gentiles, they need to get with the program or they need to get out. You remember what the result of all of that was? What was the conclusion in Acts the 15th chapter? When that conference came together, the apostles and the elders and all these brothers came together to study and to talk about that matter. Do you remember what the final conclusion was? The final conclusion was that this attitude and this line of thinking... It is utterly wrong. We can't do that anymore. Everybody is to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. 
We're not going to be hindering folks from having the opportunity to enjoy the blessings of being a part of the kingdom of God. Whether you're new, whether you're old, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, doesn't matter. Those things cannot matter anymore. And if we today, if we are carrying some amount of hesitancy about growth, because we have a fear that we're going to get new people and they're going to come in here, and they're not going to know all of our history, and they're not going to know all of our ways, then what we need to do, quite simply is we got to let that go. We do. we got to let that go because that is a hindrance to the growth of the kingdom of God. Yes, new members, they are just that. They're new. And no, they do not know everything about everything. But you know what? Knowing the history of the Lakeside Congregation and memorizing a seating chart of our auditorium, those are not prerequisites for being a part of the Lord's body. And I'm thankful for that. We welcome new people. Even with all of the baggage and all the difficulties that they may bring to the table, we welcome those folks so that we can then help them to grow in the kingdom. Just like we were given the opportunity and the time that we needed to grow in the kingdom. And while I will say it once again, that I have not seen this attitude manifested here at Lakeside in some kind of an outward way, the way that Acts 15 is describing, I do think and I do fear that this can sometimes be a very subtle thing. And I say that because I am guilty of feeling that. I am guilty of having that same kind of hesitancy about new folks coming in here. Man, maybe we ought to put some kind of a limit on this. Maybe we shouldn't think about, talk about ideas about expanding the church building. Let's just put a cap on however many we can fit in these seats right now. That's just our, that's our top number. I've thought those very things. And I don't ever want my attitude. I don't ever want my warped way of thinking to stunt the growth of this congregation or to stunt the growth of the kingdom of God in any way. I've got to change that. I've got, got to rethink that. Just like this second attitude that can stunt the growth of the church. And that is, whenever one person's scruples ends up ruling and running the entire congregation. Let's look in Romans the 14th chapter, please. In Romans 14, let's just hear God's Word on this matter. This is probably the best place to go to read about this. In Romans 14, Paul writes to a congregation that was they were having some troubles with trying to figure out how to balance and how to juggle all of these different matters of human opinion. These are things that were not legislated by the Word of God. They're not part of the New Covenant. But these are things that folks had strongly held beliefs about. And so Paul says, Romans 14, verse 1, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. The issue here in the letter to the Romans, or at least one of the main issues that Paul talks about, is about matters of food, what you can eat and what you cannot eat. Because for Jewish Christians, kosher dietary laws were enormously important. That was such a part of their background and their tradition and their history. In fact, fasting may have also been a big part of all that. Look in verse 5. Paul says in verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Jews did fast. Pharisees in particular, they fasted twice every week. And so we've got lots of decisions to be made here about food and about what we're going to eat. You can eat that, but you can't eat that. 
And hey, don't be eating on that day. And here's this day over here. You can't eat on that day either. Lots of scruples, lots of strongly held beliefs about food. Now, I want you to please note that this is not matters of the gospel. Jesus did not bind dietary kosher laws on His followers on the New Testament church. Nor did Jesus bind any kind of fasting or any kind of observance of those special days. And so, this stuff about food and eating and fasting, this didn't come from Jesus. So who's it coming from? It's coming from those Jewish Christians who are trying to bind their convictions and their scruples on everybody else in the church. At this point, somebody's maybe wondering, well, what's a scruple? Can we define what a scruple is? A scruple is your personal conviction about something. And in particular, it is your feelings of doubt that something is right. A scruple is that uncomfortable feeling that you get inside when you're just not entirely sure about something. It is your own personal conviction. But the issue here in Romans chapter 14 is what? It's that these Jewish Christians were not content to just practice those scruples and those convictions in the privacy of their home. That, hey guys, this is how we're going to eat in our house. These are the foods we're going to eat at home. These are the foods we're not going to eat at home. These are the days that we're going to observe at home, and these are the days that we're not going to observe at home. No, 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 no. That's not the way that it was happening there. What was happening in that church was these folks, they wanted everybody to eat the same way that they ate. I want this to be taught in the church. I want this to be practiced by everybody in the church. I want those Gentiles to be doing exactly as I do. I want everybody to be doing it my way. Can I ask? Talking about all this stuff about dietary laws and some of that maybe seems a little bit foreign to us. Can I ask you, do the attitudes that underlie this scenario in Romans 14, do those kinds of things ever happen today? I held a meeting one time at a congregation where uh, they didn't have uh, they didn't have a microphone, they didn't have speakers in the auditorium, which was fine for me because I'm loud anyway. It didn't I didn't need it, um, but they didn't have any kind of AV equipment and they didn't have any kind of PowerPoint. They didn't have it. Had, had an old chalkboard, but they didn't have any kind of PowerPoint. And I just happened to mention to one of the brothers who had come and heard me preach in another gospel meeting, he was talking about how my PowerPoint slides always helped him be able to follow along. And I said, well, you guys need to get you one. Those things are really great. They're pretty cheap now. You can get a pretty pretty good projector for a couple hundred bucks and get you an old used laptop and put Microsoft Office on there. And it's a relatively cheap thing. It really does help to, to for folks to follow along with the preaching. And sometimes it even enhances the sermon in some way. After I got done saying all that, this brother said to me without any thought whatsoever, he said, well, we wanted to get one years ago. But one brother thinks that projectors are unscriptural. We tried to get one. We talked about it. Had a whole business meeting about it. But this one brother objected. And so no PowerPoint. And that happens. That happens probably way more than we would like to admit. You mean you're going to preach? out of a translation of the Bible other than the King James translation? Why? Well, that's the one that my grandpappy used. Oh, no, no, no. Everybody's got to be reading from the King James translation. Oh, you're singing off of projected hymns? You can't be singing off of a screen. No, no, no. Can't. A supplement book? You got something in addition to the regular songbook? Oh, we can't be having that. And we hear that kind of stuff. 
In fact, you get enough people like that in a room together, you can find somebody who's going to object to anything and everything. And the next thing you know, what do you got? What you've got is you've got an entire church that is slowly chugging to a grinding halt because sister million scruples and brother object to everything is holding everybody captive to their will. And oftentimes when you stop and listen to those objections, there's some common refrains that are amongst those objections many times. You'll hear things like, well, I'm just not comfortable with that. Or, you know, we didn't do it that way when I was growing up at the church that I grew up in. Or, you know, that's not what brother so-and-so did, or that's not what my daddy did. I want you to realize those kinds of objections are so far afield from someone sincerely and genuinely saying, well, I have an objection, and the reason that I have an objection is because that appears to be a violation of New Testament teaching, and here's the book, chapter, and verse that proves it. That's very different for someone to say, hey, here's a passage that says that that's something we shouldn't be doing. Or here's a passage that says here's something we should be doing. That's a very different kind of thing. But more often than not, those kinds of objections are more along the lines of, well, I just don't like that. That just makes me feel weird. Or my favorite is, it's a waste of the Lord's money. That seems to be kind of a catch-all for all kinds of stuff. All of those things are just a cloaked way of saying, I have a personal scruple, and I'm not going to be happy until everybody in the whole congregation bends to my way of thinking and my way of doing. The Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Romans, will have none of that. Romans 14, Paul continues on. Would you drop down to verse 13? In verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Drop down to verse 22. The faith that you have, your scruple, you keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself or what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Don't violate your conscience, Paul says. Don't go against your own personal scruple that you have. But what he does go on to say is, is you can't hold the entire church hostage to your personal convictions. In fact, really Romans is a bad chapter break in chapter 15 because Paul continues this line of thought. Drop down to chapter 15, look in verse 7. Paul says, therefore, here's kind of the, the summation of all this, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The Josh McKibben South Central Kentucky translation says, get along with each other. And move on. You do what you've got to do as it pertains to your personal, private matters of personal conviction and opinion. You take care of those matters in the privacy of your home and within your family, and that's that's just fine. But Paul here in this passage, and nowhere else in the New Testament, Paul does not empower the weakest brother to stop everything that the church does just because that brother's not comfortable with something. I want to be very clear. I've said this once, but I want to reiterate it again. If we are doing something that is wrong, if we as a church are practicing something that is outside of the pattern of the New Testament, if we are doing something that would be categorized as sinful because it is outside of the law of God, then I would hope somebody would speak up about that. We need to hear that. We need to know about that and we need to adjust ourselves accordingly. But just because something is different 
It's because something is a little bit different from the way that I've always thought we should do that. Like, for example, I remember a guy that just got totally unglued at the thought of advertising a gospel meeting or advertising things about the church on a website. His point was, well, there's so, so much filth on the Internet. All kinds of bad stuff on there. We can't be putting the church on the Internet. Or using Facebook or social media to get the word out about various things. Just because we do things that might be different from the way they did them a generation before, that doesn't mean that those things are unscriptural. And so what we need to do is we need to use good judgment within the parameters of what the Scriptures allow. We need to respect one another's privately held convictions. But to bind where God has not bound, that could end up not just splintering a church, but that could permanently stunt and hinder and obstruct the growth of a church. As we appeal to the lowest common denominator, we can't be about that. Lastly then, this evening, let me say something about how growth gets stunted. Whenever we just live in this constant fear that bigger, it just automatically equals liberal. And however you define liberal, that term just gets thrown around, but it usually just means something negative and something bad. If a church is bigger, well, they must be liberal. Big church. I mean, look, I mean, look at the size of the building there. I mean, look, I mean, they've got... Looks like twice the size of this church building. I mean, they must be liberal. Church has got several hundred people, or maybe even a thousand or more people in it all. It must be a liberal congregation. And that kind of thing is said often. Those kinds of things are thought often. I have been guilty of thinking those very thoughts. And I know why we think those thoughts. And that's because much of what goes on in Christendom today... In the denominational world, churches have acted horribly. Churches have acted terribly. They have violated scriptural laws in a thousand different ways. And as a result, they have exploded. They've catered to people in every possible way so that we can bring more and more people in. And it's painted this idea of a big church in a very negative light even in our minds. Can I say just a couple of things about that that will help us as we try to combat this particular thought and attitude in our mind. First of all, I want to remind us that churches in the New Testament, a bunch of them were large. Very large. We notice already Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Look in Acts 4. In Acts chapter 4, this is a little bit after the original occurrences that took place on the day of Pentecost. What that church look like after, I don't know, another few days or another couple weeks? Acts chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Look in chapter 6, still talking about this Jerusalem church. In Acts chapter 6, look in verse 7. In Acts 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. At this point, Luke's not even telling us numbers anymore. He just says it's multiplied greatly. Somebody would maybe wonder, well, well, how many could that be? Well, I'll give you something to think about. Look in Acts 17. In Acts 17 and in verse 6. In Acts chapter 17 and in verse 6. We're told there that when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men, these Christians, they have turned the world 
upside down. Can I ask you? Do you think the folks who said, these Christians who've turned the world upside down, do you think those folks were referencing a congregation that had 122 people in it? I'm doubtful. I'm doubtful of that. I think they're referencing thousands and thousands of Christians. And by this point, yeah, you had churches everywhere, not just in Jerusalem, but you had churches starting to dot all over the landscape of the first century world. Those congregations were large. And so imagine loading up in your car. And you come from out of town and you drive by the Jerusalem church right around the time of Acts chapter 5 or Acts chapter 6. What would you think when you saw wherever it was that they met together, whether that was at the temple or at some other location, and you saw thousands and thousands of people? Would your immediate reaction be to say, Oh, that must be a liberal church. No other way that you can account for thousands of people coming together to worship and to serve God. we got a break from that. New Testament shows us that churches were very large. I chafe a little bit. And I say this directed at myself. I chafe when folks say things like, you know, we was looking for a congregation to worship with and we drove by that building and ah, we just saw how big it was and ah, we just pretty sure it was a liberal church. And I understand why we think those thoughts and I understand why we say those things. But how much better would it be if we could drive by a facility where the church meets and our first thought is not, well, that must be a liberal congregation. What if our first thought instead was, those people are doing the Lord's work. Those people are busy in the work of evangelism. Those people are influencing this community. And look at how the Lord has blessed them with such tremendous growth. What a different way of thinking about those things. Furthermore, since I said that about evangelism, I'll say this as well. Being aggressive in evangelism, that is not something that is frowned upon in the New Testament. And we need to just rightfully admit that sometimes the reason churches are blessed with great growth is not because they're bending the Scriptures in order to appeal to anybody and everybody. It's because it is comprised of members who are on the ground, they are doing the work, and they are sharing the Word of God. And as a result of the sowing and the watering and the nurturing of the soil, God is blessing that and the church receives the growth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm going to borrow this passage, this place where Paul is talking about some of the liberties uh, that he had at his disposal and how from time to time he would utilize those liberties for the good of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, look in verse 19, In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I think if if Paul were around today, and he saw all of the things that are available to us, everything from cell phones, and internet websites, and apps like Meetup, where you can organize a Bible study, or even just see things like a car or a plane, and how all of those things can be utilized to teach people the gospel, to be able to bring more people into the kingdom, as Paul says there in verse 19, so that we can win them the more. Man, Paul would be all over all of those things. And we need to make use of those things. Once again, within the boundaries and within the parameters of what the Scripture will allow. Certainly not advocating we're just going to do anything and everything in order to get people into this building. But there is something to be said 
that when a church is aggressive in evangelism, and there's churches all throughout the New Testament who were aggressive in that, and Paul commends them for that. He's thankful for that. That sometimes contributes to the growth of a congregation. And then thirdly, finally, let me say about all this, I want us to recognize that when we fear this idea that if a church is big, all that must mean that they're liberal, I want us to understand that our standard, the standard that we have been given, is not, don't look like a liberal church. That is not the charge that we have been given. The Lord has not placed us here in this place to work together, and our goal, our main mission, is to just make sure that we do not look like churches of the world. That is not the job that we have been tasked with. Look at Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul speaks to these Ephesian elders, and listen to what he says is the standard. In Acts 20 and in verse 28, in Acts 20 and verse 28, he tells those shepherds, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Our standard, the standard of the Lord's church, is to follow Jesus. To follow the One who shed His blood in order to purchase us, in order to make us His people. That's what our identity needs to be wrapped up in. I don't want my identity as a Christian, and I do not want our identity as a congregation to be all about what we don't do, what we're against. That's, that's why sometimes folks throw out that, that it's a derogatory term. But they call folks in the Church of Christ, y'all a bunch of antis, you're against this and you're against that, and absolutely, we need to be against things. There's things the Bible makes clear. We need to be against and we need to be opposed to. But I don't want people to look at me and that be the first thing that's on their mind. He's against this, he's against that, he's against this, he's against that. No! I want people to see what I am for. I am for following Jesus. I'm about the things that Jesus was about. About His love and His grace and the forgiveness that is found through the cross. That, that is what we want our identity to be, to be consumed in. This idea of don't go looking like a liberal church, well, where does that end? Do we decide, well, you know, liberal churches, they have doors. And so in order for us to not look like those liberal churches, in order for us to not look like those denominational churches, what we'll do is we'll jump out of windows because they have doors. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. We want to work within the parameters of what the Scriptures provides for, what the Scriptures authorize, and then the Lord will bless us if we are seeking to simply follow Jesus and keep Him as the standard in all things. And so I began with the question this evening. How big should a church be? How big should this church be? And I'll tell you what my answer is to that. I believe this church can be, and it will be, as big as God will bless it to be. As long as we are strong enough, individually, to sustain the growth that He supplies, and as long as we are seeking to please Him, to follow in the steps of Jesus every step of the way. Is it possible, as I look at that list of ideas there, is it possible that maybe somewhere deep down there's a kernel of truth to some of those bad attitudes? I'm going to say again, every single one of those things, they everyone hit me. Those are all born from my own personal experiences. And I've got to work through some of that stuff. 
And there are different times where some of those things start rearing their ugly heads once again. And I start to think, man, it would just be better if the church was smaller. Man, just, things are just so much more manageable. And you have to worry about so many different people when we were at this number instead of being at this number. I don't believe those are right attitudes. I don't believe that's the kind of thing that's going to please the Lord. If I need to work on some of those, if I need to start pushing some of those out of the way, then that's what I need to do. Because what we want to be is we simply want to be a strong, and we want to be a committed, and we want to be a faithful, and if the Lord should allow, we want to be a large church that belongs to Jesus Christ. Now where are you at this evening? Are you a part of that church that you can read about in the New Testament? Are you a part of the church that Paul described to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 and verse 28? Are you part of that church that Jesus bought and paid for with His own blood? If you are not, then right now is a wonderful opportunity for you to do so. If you will submit yourself to God's plan of salvation, if you will come to Him in faith, confess Jesus as God's Son, repent and turn from sin, be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins, Not only will that make you a Christian, not only will that put you in a right relationship with God, but God will indeed add you to His church, just like He did those folks in Acts 2 verse 41. Can we help you to do that? Brother or sister, can we help you to serve the Lord in a better way? It may be that you are a member of the Lord's church, but you just as an individual, as an individual Christian, you've not really been serving Him faithfully. Would you fix that? Would you change? Would you repent and come to Him and beg Him for forgiveness. Let us pray with you and let us encourage you so that you can serve the Lord in a better way. Whatever your need may be, the invitation is open for all. Take advantage of it right now while we stand and while we sing.